All right, Hebrews chapter 3, if you would, go ahead and turn there. And here, just in a minute, we're going to read chapter 3 and 4 together just to get the whole um, context of all that at one shot. But before we do, remember the book of Hebrews, all about the uh, superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember three key words. If you can remember these three words, you can think of the book of Hebrews in a, in a big picture. All right? So by now, hopefully everybody's getting those three words. What are those three words? The person of Christ. The superior person of Christ. All right? And then what's the second word? Priesthood. The superior priesthood of Christ. And then the third word? Principle, and that's the superior principle of Christ, which is faith in Him, okay? And we'll obviously get to that. Actually, in chapter 3, we start seeing that principle starting to be emphasized, okay? But, um, so, let me see if this is going to work right here. So, those three words, all right? We got that. Now, I wanted to just skip all the way down here so I don't have to go through all these slides I think this is where yeah that's fine there all right so what do I do now hit the presentation use presenter mode view okay Helps to have somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> okay. All right. Now I had to start going line by line, but there's not too many to go here. All right. So in chapters one through four is, is uh, the, the presentation of the superior person of Christ, which began in chapter one talking about his deity. Um, then in chapter 2, it emphasizes what about the person of Christ? It's not up there yet, so I was smart to not enough to not click to that yet. But uh, the first couple of verses are a warning, all right, the first warning passage. Remember, in the book of Hebrews, there's five what are referred to as serious warning passages. We're actually going to see, uh, we're not going to park on it, but we're going to see the second one today. But first several verses, chapter 2, you have the warning his deity in chapter 1, in chapter 2, is emphasizes his humanity. His person is superior, number one, because he's God, okay? And, and obviously, you could just kind of leave it at that. But he is, his, his, the person of Christ is superior to all because of his humanity as well. He, he became, he's God, God the Son, eternal God the Son, who became a man. And when he became a man, he... Be, he fully became man. I mean, again, that's, that's extremely, probably impossible for us to really understand. He didn't cease to be God, but he also, he became man as well. And, and that's deep, it really is. But that's what the Bible teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. And really the, the lack to believe that or receive that truth, to welcome that truth, is really where many people, many groups, and so on, they, they get off because they just, you know, again, it's hard to understand in our human mentality. We are limited, and we can, there's no way we can understand everything about God with our limited human understanding. But yet it's what the Bible teaches, and so it's what God wants us to believe. We must believe it, all right? Uh, but his, he's superior because of his humanity. He was fully man, 100% man, all right? 100% God, 100% man after he became man, okay? Uh, but chapter 2 presents two big truths, and really you could break especially the second one down a lot more than what we did, but uh, two main truths as to why it was imperative that he took on humanity, that he became a man, that he took on a human nature. And the first one was to do what Adam failed to do, all right? He recovered man's dominion over God's creation that God gave to Adam, but Adam lost when he sinned, all right? He recovered that because of all that he did. He was completely faithful, which is what we see 
in chapter 3. But secondly, he came to reconcile, he became man so he could reconcile man's relationship with God. And it was important, or imperative, I should say, that he became man because without becoming man, he could not do this. There's no way that God could suffer and die for man without becoming man. God can't die. All right? I mean, he's, he's perfectly self-contained, eternal, uh, he, you know, but he became man so that he could do something for man that man couldn't do for himself. All right? And involved in all of that, again, there's a number of things here. I'm just going to try to click through. But we, that, that's really the, the big presentation of the first two chapters. Now, again, we could stop and park a lot more on a lot of these things, but these, uh, we're gonna, we'll take more time as we get into chapters 5 through 10, which talks about his priesthood, okay? Which is, which is the more, uh, what we could say, the more unique aspect of the book of Hebrews when it comes to the person of Christ. It focuses, in fact... Interesting enough, if you read the, the materials that I printed out and gave to you, in the one that's uh, the, uh, I forget what I called it, the background of the book of Hebrews, introduction to, to Hebrews, in there, there's some key words that we mentioned and like the times that they're used. And uh, the idea of priest, priest, plural, or priesthood, I think it occurs like 34 times in the book of Hebrews. Um, Last night, because of a verse I was looking up specifically and, and, and focusing on here for this morning, uh, I, I recalculated, if you want to say, the word priest in the New Testament only occurs in the Gospels and the book of Acts, and it's generally always there referring to the high, like Caiaphas, the high priest, you know, referring to that historical account of, of how they involved with Jesus and so on, all right? But... Other than the Gospels in the book of Acts, talking about that, the only other book of the Bible that the word priest, singular, now in like Peter it says we're priests and kings and so on, but, but is in the book of Hebrews. And it's 26 times referring to the Lord Jesus, although uh, there's a couple of those that are generic as well, not referring to Jesus. But my point is, Hebrews puts obviously a unique look at Christ and who he is, what he did in, in relation to his priestly work, right? And that's the, the main focus. We see it introduced in chapter 2, but that's the main focus in chapters 5 through 10, which we will get to, all right? So we've seen this. Now, this brings us to chapter 3, all right? Um, <clears throat> so what I wanted to do this morning and we're, uh, let, let, let's do this. There's only 35 verses. We'll do it now, and then next week we won't read the, the publicly the whole thing. But let's read chapters 3 and 4. I want to read them all together because, again, it, there's, there's some, uh, in chapter 3, particularly in the warning passage, there's some verses that people often misuse, misunderstand, okay? And so... Uh, I want, to, want us to read it in the whole context in which it goes together. So if, uh, if Pastor Brinker would start and we'll just go around the room as whoever can read or cares to read, not that you're able to, you know what I mean. Anyway, if you want to read, read, okay, uh, in, in consecutive turn here, and we'll just keep on going around until we get through chapters 3 and 4, all right? So, so I'll read for Patty as well. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling concerning the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as ye who have builded the house have more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice. Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. 
Wherefore it was grieved at that generation and said, They do always, always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. They exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confession steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not only that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And unto whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they did not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith <coughs> in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath that they shall enter into my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in, because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that is entered into his rest, he hath also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched uh, with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump right in here, all right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us now as we look at this portion of the book of Hebrews, this uh, really important uh, book of the Bible, this presentation, special presentation of the Lord Jesus. Help us to appreciate him, love him, submit to him as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapters 3 and 4, um, in the again, in the... The procession of the book of Hebrews, it's still talking about the person of Christ, okay? But you'll see it starts to get into the aspect of his priesthood, but that's really after chapter 4. But uh, this, in chapter 3, the emphasis is, is on that Christ is superior because of his faithfulness, right? He's God, he's human, but he is the faithful one, all right? And that is important, again, in the whole big picture scope presentation in the book of Hebrews. His humanity. Now, this, this ties closely with chapter 2 and where it introduced his humanity, all right? His humanity is essential to his faithfulness, all right? Uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, first word, wherefore, again, it's, it's building on what was just said, what, what's already gone before, all right? So... It's building on that, and you'll see this aspect of Christ's faithfulness being presented here, right? 
The Lord Jesus was completely faithful in fulfilling his mission. And by the way, he is the only one that's ever lived that that can be said of. Completely, all right? There's been, and, and thank the Lord, you know, there's, there are, and there's been many faithful people, many faithful saints of God down through the ages. But there's only one that's never failed in anything, and that's the Lord Jesus, all right? Which, again, is important because of what the whole scheme of Hebrews is talking about, all right? He's the only one that can truly be counted on. That's why, ultimately, when it gets there, He's the one that deserves our faith. He's the one that our faith should be in because he's the only one that's truly 100% completely faithful. All right? So it makes sense. All right? So in chapter 3 and 4, this aspect of his faithfulness, he's superior in his person because of his faithfulness, his deity, his humanity, his faithfulness. All right? Um, we see four points. Let me just bring these up real quick. The consideration of Jesus' mission, we'll, we'll talk about that here momentarily, and then secondly, you'll see a comparison of Jesus and Moses. You notice that as, as the reading was going on, Moses is brought into the picture. And interestingly enough, Moses would be looked at by the Jews as a faithful man, and he was, okay? But we'll talk more about that. And then you see kind of a pause, really. There's, there's a, a stop at verse 7 in chapter 3, all the way into chapter 4, verse 13, this is that second warning passage, all right? And the whole point of this passage is just really driving home the seriousness of this matter of faithfulness, all right? Again, Christ's faithfulness, but if we are really going to be saved, it's, it's a matter of genuine, serious faith, okay? And part of, I believe, part of the point of this warning is to drive home the fact salvation's serious. It's not a flippant, you know, oh, you know, don't you want to go to heaven, just repeat this prayer kind of thing. It is a serious matter, all right? And that, that's part of the emphasis here, all right? And then this, this uh, point, this, this section ends in verses, the last three verses of chapter 4 with just demonstrating we need to have confidence in Jesus' priesthood. Then it goes into uh, the next six chapters, whatever, just describing his priesthood and what all he is, okay? Um, and, and really, you can call that, it's kind of a transitional passage because it's like the hinge turning from talking about his person into his priesthood, all right? Um, but notice verse 1, all right, of chapter 3. Let's, let's talk about these here with as much as we can this morning. And, and just, I'll state it up front, for this morning's purpose, for the most part, I'm going to skip over the warning passage, all right, uh, verse 7 down through uh, 4.13. And then the plan is, Lord willing, we'll get back to that next week, okay, because I, I want to present the whole context, the argument, then we'll get back to that. Because, again, if you understand the context, some of the statements in that warning passage make more sense, okay? Um, so the consideration of Jesus' ministry. Notice how verse 1, again, wherefore, so it's, it's based on his deity as humanity. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, all right? Now, obviously, those statements uh, take into account the writer of Hebrews, which may or may not be the Apostle Paul. I don't have a bit of problem believing it's Paul, all right? It, it might very well be, but we can't say 100% for sure, so it really doesn't matter if it was Paul or whoever, okay? But it's still God's Word. But uh, the writer here is writing to these people with kind of like the idea, I would say, taking for granted that they are saved. In other words, they've made profession of salvation, and so he's writing with saying, okay, you're, you know, you're uh, partakers of the heavenly calling, you're holy brethren, all right, and by the way, for anybody that's saved, that would be true, all right, but he's, he's writing, addressing them here, and then notice what he says, consider, that's, that's the action here, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, so consider Christ Jesus, and he's described with those two uh, statements here, the apostle and high priest of our profession. If you stop and think about this, again, 
in the scope of this, it makes sense that he chooses, that God chose the word apostle here, all right? Because what is an apostle? All right, an apostle is a messenger, a delegate, an envoy, somebody that's sent on a mission. That's what an apostle is, and that's what an apostle was, all right? Now, you know, we have in the New Testament, there's specifically, you know, 12 apostles of Christ, and there's the apostle Paul, I mean, but generically speaking, an apostle, that was just a word that was used often in that day, it's someone who was sent by someone else to do something on a specific mission, all right? Uh, the word ambassador could be, you know, almost interchangeable with that, although an ambassador, you know, might have a little more technical aspects to it, but it's somebody sent. And the idea is Christ Jesus was sent here to this earth, became a man, and he was sent here to do something. That's the point. And he was faithful in doing what he was sent to do. All right? So we're to consider that. The idea of consider is to think about, all right? To, to give regard to this, to think carefully about this. Uh, is the idea. He's the apostle. Notice the two, uh, the phrase, the apostle and high priest of our profession. So both, both terms go with profession. So he's the apostle of our profession. He's also the high priest of our profession. Now, the word profession here is, the word is probably more than not translated in the New Testament as confession or an, you know, it's the, the verb is like in John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, all right? But the, the noun related to that is confession, all right? And that's the word here. But when it's used this way, and, and the idea is it's talking about a profession in the sense of somebody has professed allegiance to, uh, they've made a, you know, a confession to somebody else, not in the sense they're admitting sin, but they've professed, they're, they're adhering to uh, some kind of a person or a statement or whatever, right? So it's a statement of allegiance as uh, content of an action, a confession, acknowledgement that one makes, all right? So he's the apostle, the one sent, and he's the apostle of our profession. Our profession has to do with him. All right? And our faith in him really has to do with who he is and what he came to do. That's, that's what it's all about. All right? and, and both of these aspects, the word apostle comes first. It's probably, again, referring back to the first two chapters in that all right, he's God who became man. He came here for specific reasons. That's an apostle. All right, that's what an, that's the word of fits. All right, and then it says, and he's also the high priest of our profession. And now again, this is this is the part of Hebrews where that really starts to change over to just start putting more emphasis on his priestly work. All right, um, which basically, let me just put it this way: basically, took place in heaven, not on earth. All right. Uh, so that his apostleship aspect took, took place here on earth, but his priestly work took place in heaven, all right? But he's the high priest of our profession, not only, in fact, let me back up for a second. Talking about our profession, all right? Um, again, that word is the idea of confessing an allegiance to, all right? Again, it can also have the idea of, a, a, you know, uh, when we confess our sins, we're, we're, we're admitting, but we're, say, we're agreeing with God. We're saying the same thing about our sin that God does, okay? But a profession, our allegiance, it's, I think the idea is seen, in fact, would somebody turn to Romans chapter 10? Romans chapter 10, there's two verses there that I'll ask you to read, verses 9 and 10, uh, very commonly used verses, and particularly even when it comes to salvation, part of what a lot of people call the Romans Road. All right, Pastor, I'll read it here in a second. But uh, if and I, but I think that these verses are. I mean, they're 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 read and quoted and all this, but they're not really stopped and thinking about what those verses say. All right, verses nine and ten. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus 
and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. All right, the word confess there in verse 9, again, that's the verb that's related to the noun that's here, our profession, he's the apostle of our profession, all right? The idea is in salvation, there is a confession that we make, all right? What is that confession? Well, I, I think Romans 10, 9 states it, that we confess with our mouth, but what is it that we confess? We confess what? That he is Lord. I mean, it's acknowledgement of who he is. He is the Lord Jesus. He's different than anybody else. He is the Lord, all right? And yes, there's an emphasis on the fact he is Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. He's God, all right? And when a person gets saved, there is an element of that that has to be present. There's a submission to him that has to take place in the heart. It's not just words that people, you know, like some magic formula that, whoa, you know, and they're transported into, it's a, it's, it's a, a repentance of heart that takes place and a submission before him. I mean, the whole essence of, of unsalvation is not a word, I guess, but the whole essence of not being saved is we are at enmity against God. We are rebelling against God. The whole essence of salvation is we are submitting to God. We are, you know, we're, we're brought back into a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, but that element of it's a submission to Him. There, that is present in genuine salvation. It's not present in a lot of professions of salvation, perhaps, but in genuine salvation, that is present. Right? In fact, that, the, the verses say that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart. So, okay, again, it's not just something that's said with the lips. It's a matter of the heart. All right? And then it says, for we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. So understanding what Christ did. He, he died. He was buried. He rose again. All right? That's, that's the basis of the gospel. That's why, that's how God can forgive sins, because of what Christ has done. All right? And then uh, verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I don't know that the verses are saying that somebody literally has to open their mouth and, and profess, you know, verbally, uh, that Jesus is Lord to be saved, but there's something that happens in their heart. There's a, there's a submission to him that has to take place in their heart, right? Uh, again, words may be said, but words may not be said. Salvation is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of some ritual of, you know, going through the motions of something, or it's, it's a matter of the heart, right? And, and the Lord Jesus, in fact, here in Hebrews, back in Hebrews 3, here, his name is said, Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, sometimes Jesus precedes Christ. Sometimes Christ precedes Jesus. Uh, other than the, maybe which word is being emphasized, there's really no difference. He's still the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? But here, his, his name is emphasized as Christ Jesus. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, in the Jewish understanding, the high priest is the one that what? Went before God to secure forgiveness, atonement, all right? And for them, it was for, an, for a year, <laughs> all right? Had to be repeated all the time. And later on in Hebrews, we'll see that, okay? But Christ, as Hebrews will later emphasize, Christ did it once for all because his is a perfect priesthood. All right, because he was completely faithful. And, and again, all of that's involved in this whole picture, right? And I got to move on. But so you see uh, the consideration of Jesus' mission. He came as he was an apostle and high priest of our profession. And then in the next several verses, you see him compared uh, to Moses. All right, you see a comparison of Jesus and Moses. Christ as, and, and the essence of these verses is wrapped up in that phrase, Christ as son Son of God, is superior to Moses as servant. You'll see 
the comparison made here, and you'll see the idea of a house talked about, all right? Um, in fact, let me just go through the verses here. Verse 2, who was faithful, Christ Jesus was faithful to him, that's God, that appointed him, as also Moses was also uh, was faithful in all his house, all right? Moses was also faithful in God's house. The his house is not Moses' house, it's God's house. Moses was part of the house, though, is the idea. Christ, as you'll see, he's the son over a house. Now, it's not exactly the same house, all right? It seems to me, anyway, some might disagree, but I, I think the idea of the house that Moses was part of here is Israel, all right? Uh, whereas the house we see talked about Christ's house, his own house, that's, of course, the New Testament. Uh, you might say the New Testament church, New Testament believers, all right? But um, for Moses was counted, uh, for this man was counted worthy of more, uh, more glory, verse 3, than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. All right. Now, the idea is if you're part of a house, okay, there's a certain element involved there, but yet the one who's over the house, who built the house, who owns the house, obviously he has more glory than those that are in the house, right? It's his house, right? And, and so on. So that, that's the idea, all right? Um, verse 5, and Moses verily was faithful in all his house, all right? Moses was faithful. And the emphasis here is not that, you know, Moses failed in a couple things. I mean, you know, obviously in the big picture, we know Moses was not 100% faithful to the job that God originally gave him. His job was to get Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. He did get them out of Egypt with God's help. I say God got them out, but, Mo you know, Moses was the man that God used to lead them out. But yet he did fall short of getting them into the promised land. Now, People might argue, you know, some of that's not necessarily Moses' fault. I mean, the unbelief, and that's what this next warning passage really emphasizes. The unbelief of the people is what kept them out of the promised land. Moses had a specific instance that kept him personally out of the promised land. But the people, you know, God said, okay, you've tempted me these ten times. Enough is enough. You're going to stay in the wilderness till you all die. All right? I mean, you're familiar with the, the situation there, right? And, and it was their unbelief that kept them out of the land. That's, and that's the emphasis of this warning passage, right? But, uh, but both Christ and Moses were faithful to God, but only Christ completed. Christ is the builder and owner of the house. Moses was part of a house, right? Christ is the fulfillment of what Moses testified of. Notice in verse 5, Moses was verily faithful. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, but then for a testimony of those things, things which were to be spoken of hereafter. Hebrews, later on, we're going to see a number of places that emphasize that all of those things that took place in the law, you know, with Moses, the tabernacle, the offerings, the priesthood, all of those were just simply foreshadows, pictures of things that Christ fulfilled, all right? So they were as verse 5's words, they were a testimony of what was to come in Christ. All right, that's another way to, to look at it. All right, they were, they were a previous witness of what was going to happen, what Christ, what God would do through Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> verse 6 then, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, again, New Testament believers, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, that's an interesting statement that he adds unto there, adds on to it, okay? Obviously, it's faith in Christ. We know that from what all the Bible teaches, all right? But here he adds this statement, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, let me just say this here, and we'll talk more about this as we look at the warning next week, all right? But our salvation is not contingent on whether we hold on or whether we endure and so on, okay? However, if we're saved, we will endure. We will persist in faith. That doesn't mean that there will be times of lack of faith in our lives in certain instances and, and you know, times when we wane and so on, but yet the bottom line is the picture of our life is faith 
in Christ. All right? That's, that's the idea. But this, this whole thing is given as a warning, again, to emphasize this is a serious thing. This is not just some simple, you know, acknowledgement, some flippant thing. This is very serious. Very serious. And it should be taken seriously. Not just by those considering salvation, but by those presenting salvation to others. I mean, I think it's a travesty how the gospel is handled so many times. It's, it's, it's handled so carelessly, so flippantly. And it should not be because it is a very serious thing in many ways. And again, I believe that's the emphasis of what this warning's about, is to listen and be serious about this. This is not, this is a serious matter, all right? And so the number three, I guess, Christ is the son over the house. Moses is only a servant in the house. I think we already got to that. So number three in this is the contemplation of Jesus' rest or the rest that Jesus can give, that can be found in Jesus, all right? And this is really this, it's, 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 it's not advancing the, the whole argument of the book of Hebrews as such. It's just stopping and really hammering on that last statement there of if we hold this hope firm unto the end. And it's a serious matter. That's the idea, okay? In fact, notice just quickly some of the words, all right? If, if you notice, verse 7 starts with what word? Wherefore, and then the second word has a parenthesis right in front of it, right? Which that parenthesis section goes all the way down to the end of verse 11, all right? So just that. So think of this. If, if you just, for sake of reading this, leave out the parentheses for a second, and it's wherefore, then verse 12, take heed, brethren, all right? So again, it's, it's a serious warning. Wherefore, take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The idea is, if a person departs from the truth, it's because they didn't adhere to the truth to begin with. It's not because they had the truth and lost it. It's because they never fully came. Because there's a lot of people that are in the, if you want to say, in the shadow of the truth, but they never, you know, it's like they go up to the door, right? I've oftentimes tried to liken it this way. And again, any pictures probably don't do the, real, the reality justice, okay? But it's like if you go up, there's a door here, right? You can pull up to church, pull in, uh, you know, and, and sit out in your vehicle. And, but does that mean you went to church? I mean, technically not, right? In a way, maybe you could argue, well, I, I, I was there, I, I went to church. You know, I mean, you could get out and walk up the sidewalk, stand on the front porch outside the door, but did you go to church? I mean, you see what I'm getting at. I mean, pe there's people in all stages of coming to salvation, toward salvation, but yet they don't ever really cross the threshold into genuine faith in Christ. And there's a variety of reasons for that and so on. But the point is, they were never saved. They were never in the door. It's not that they went in the door and then fell out the window or, you know, they never came in the door. All right. And, and that's the idea of this warning. And again, I want to skip over this for sake of just the whole context. And we'll get back to that. So if we jump now down to verse 14 of chapter 4, all right, we see, in fact, in that warning, again, I, I can show you this here, the danger of unbelief, a hard heart, all right, consequences of Israel's unbelief, uh, warning against unbelief, you see the consequence of unbelief is missing God's rest. If one never fully comes to faith in Christ, they miss it. They miss the rest that's in Christ, all right? There's an exhortation to faithfulness here, rest, does remain for the people of God, the all-seeing, and then verses 12. Uh, again, these are verses, there's, there's a lot of verses in the book of Hebrews that we often use, you know, just pulling those verses out for a variety of things. Uh, for instance, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. I mean, we often use that, and I do, uh, in, you know, in evangelism, trying to emphasize you know, you're gonna, there's two things you can expect, death and judgment. 
That's not what those verses, that verse is implying in its context, okay? In the context, it's, it's emphasizing the fact that Christ died once, all right? But, but there is a universal truth there, all right? I mean, uh, so again, I, I, I'm not saying there's something wrong with taking a verse so-called out of context, all right? If you use it properly, there are principles throughout the Bible that can be used that way, but in its context, it does have a particular meaning, okay? Same thing with verse 12, for the word of God is quick and power, of chapter 4, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, all right? We often use that in talking about how the Bible, you know, is God's word, and it's, it's it, which is true, okay? But the point in this context, it's emphasizing the fact that God is the judge who sees all and knows all, and you're going to stand before him one day. All right, and that's why it's a serious thing, uh, this whole matter of salvation. That's how that warning ends. And then it comes to verse 14, and you see here confidence in Jesus' priesthood, as, as again, then chapter 5 really starts talking about the priesthood of Christ. Seeing then in verse 14 that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Again, if you've made a profession, it's our responsibility. This is an interesting thing. One of those kind of paradoxical kind of truths, I guess. You know, you are responsible to hold fast that profession. You're warned about that numerous times. But yet at the same time, it's not up to you, all right? You'll only hold that fast through and because of Christ, all right? He's the one that keeps you. It's not a matter of we're on the outside trying to hang on. I mean, we're in him if we're saved. But yet, we are to live that way. We have a responsibility to live out that profession. All right? So, we, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. <clears throat> Excuse me. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, a lot of times, this is, again, one of those verses that's often looked at in the sense of prayer. You know, we should take everything to the Lord. And by the way, that's a truth, okay? But really in the context, the point of it is it's talking about salvation. So our answer is that we come to Christ for salvation, because he's the one that's made the way to God, all right? That's, that's contextually the meaning of the verse, is that we're to come boldly to him. We can come confidently to Christ because he is the great high priest. He's the one that's made the way. He's the one that ministers that priesthood before God, all right? And God's not going to turn him away. I mean, think about it this way in a sense, thinking of the picture of the Old Testament priesthood, all right? It's true to say that the individual Israelites who were the population of Israel at the time, okay, there's, a, there's an element that they each, for the work that the high priest did on the Day of Atonement, okay, it, it, there's an element in which each of those individual Israelites had to, had to have faith in that for them to benefit from it before God, right? But at the same time, it was contingent on the faithfulness of the priest to do exactly what God said to do on that Day of Atonement, right? The offering that had to be made beforehand for him personally, right? And then as he came into the, the tabernacle, you know, he had to bring the blood of one of the goats. He had to sprinkle it seven times on the altar or... Uh, anyway, getting out of turn here. But he had to do the things exactly the right order the right way, or it didn't matter what faith they had, it was null because he didn't fulfill his mission. I mean, so, but at the same time, all right, because he did, any of those people, in other words, if he did fulfill his job like he was supposed to, any and all of those Israelites could benefit from it. All right, and, and the same, in that sense, same thing is true with Christ. He completely fulfilled everything that God said. He has done the work of salvation. And with Christ, he was the sacrifice 
as well as, and the part that Hebrews emphasizes, he was the priest that offered the sacrifice to God. He was the priest. Hebrews 9 says that uh, he, through the eternal spirit, sprinkled the blood. I mean, <clears throat> and I believe that took place while he was on the cross. But anyway, um, but he did, he did all of that. He was the sacrifice, and, and, and that's referred to numerous times in the New Testament in various ways. But Hebrews emphasizes that he's the priest that actually offered this. You know, he's the one that did the priestly work as well as being the sacrifice. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, all right, the sacrifice. But yet Hebrews teaches us that he's the one that was offering and applied the sacrifice so that God would be satisfied. I mean, it's a unique view that Hebrews presents. And again, again this, this transitions into that. You start seeing, in fact, it's in chapter 2, verse uh, 17, where you first see the word priest uh, occurring in Hebrews, first of the 26 times, all right? And there it says, wherefore in all things, and this is still emphasizing his humanity, all right? Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, he was human so that he could become, he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. All right, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, <clears throat> excuse me, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now, the word succor there means to bring help, to bring aid, to bring assistance, that idea. All right, so Jesus is able to help others, verse 2, or chapter 2 here, verse 17 and 18, the emphasis is because he became a man, he experienced the testings. In fact, verse, in chapter 4, it says he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. When you, you put all these things together, the idea is that the Lord Jesus experienced all the testing possible that a human could face. There's nobody that's ever lived that could point to Jesus and say, you don't know what I've been through. Now, that doesn't mean that he, like every single possible, you know, experience that's happened to somebody, he but, but he's experienced that in likeness, all right? I mean, people think about, okay, somebody suffered innocently, and, and there are a lot of bad things that happen to people where we would say they didn't deserve that, okay? And, and I'm not trying to belittle this when I make this next statement, okay? I hope you understand that. But the truth of the matter is, there's only one who has ever not deserved any wrong that he received, and that's the Lord Jesus, all right? Because there's not a human being, no matter how good or innocent they might be, all right, that is not a sinner. I mean, uh, these little children... I mean, precious, innocent, but they are sinners. I mean, sometimes we forget that maybe when we're looking at their cuteness and all this kind of stuff, but you hang around them long enough, you see the sinful part, okay? Uh, I mean, it, it comes out. Uh, but the point is, the Lord Jesus is the only one, the only one who it can be said that he truly was innocent. He truly never deserved anything that he suffered or experienced. And the point of these passages, that end of chapter 2 and then here at the end of chapter 4, all right, that he's our merciful, faithful high priest. Here he's our, our great high priest, okay? Um, he's experienced humanity. He's experienced what it's like to be a human and to be treated wrongfully, and to be the target of the devil's temptations. He's experienced it. Let me just say this. You know, every one of us in here, we are tempted to sin in a variety of ways, you know, a variety of manners and variety of sin, all this kind of stuff we are. But I dare say there's nobody in this room that, the, that Satan himself has personally interacted with you. He has a lot of help, okay? But think about this. You read the entire Bible, you could count on one hand the number of people that had any kind of 
personal temptation delivered them from Satan. Jesus, of course, I mean, I think of Job, you know, Satan interacted with God. Well, you know, Job, and God allowed him to test Job, all right? But I mean, how many others can you think of? He has a lot of help. And here's the thing, a lot of people give the devil too much credit, all right? He is a finite, limited being. He is powerful. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, there shouldn't be an element of, you know, I mean, I don't want to say we should go around fearing him. We should beware of him. In fact, 1 Peter says, you know, we need to be on the lookout because he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to beware of that. We need, and as much of the New Testament says, we need to walk circumspectly. We need to be on guard. But the point is, there's very few that the devil himself has personally interacted with in that sense. Now, he has a lot of help. Again, a lot of, a lot of demonic forces that are at work, and this whole world system that we're in is, is influenced by him, and that has an influence on us and, and all of that. But our biggest problem is generally with our flesh. The weakness of our flesh is, you know. Uh, and so what I'm getting at here with this is because of Jesus and his faithfulness, that's the whole point of this, we can boldly come to him, come to God through him because of who he is and what he's done. All right. Now, again, next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll, we'll go back and we'll talk about this warning pattern because there's some, there's some parts of it particularly that, throw, that a lot of people uh, misunderstand <laughs> as far as when it comes to salvation. So we'll take some time to do that, and maybe if there's any, any questions about any other things in this first four chapters, we could talk about. But, um, and then after that, we'll, Lord willing, we'll start into chapter 5 looking at the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. And there's a lot of wonderful stuff in that, which is the biggest content of the book of Hebrews is, is in that section, all right? But let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the Lord Jesus and just his faithfulness. Lord, I'm so unfaithful, but Lord, I'm thankful that he's faithful. And he can be completely trusted. Lord, I, I obviously have no idea of people's hearts and so on, but if there's anybody here that is not truly trusting him, that's wavering, that's, you know, uh, has, has any kind of uh, wavering in their profession, whatever, Lord, that you'd help them to see the complete faithfulness of the Lord Jesus and that he can be completely trusted. And he deserves our complete submission and trust and obedience and love. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us to... to uh, rest in him as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.